Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to today's Sunday Forum. I'm Sarah Einstone, one of the minor canons at St Paul's Cathedral. It's also a great pleasure to welcome our speaker today, Janet Morley. She's a popular writer of books on prayer and reflection, including All Desires Known and the best-selling and much-loved Lent book, The Heart's Time. She's worked for Christian Aid and the Methodist Church and has been a member of staff at Wesley House, the Methodist Theological College at Cambridge. This book focuses on what it means to develop a mature Christianity in the months and years after we make the decision to follow Christ. This book, Haphazard by Starlight, is a companion volume to the Lent book, The Heart's Time, and it offers daily poems and meditations for the Advent season. And it can serve as a thoughtful aid to devotion in the midst of the onslaught of Christmas and what my friend calls death by little donkey. So you can turn to this book for a moment of tranquility and calm amidst all those other things. Janet will be talking for 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for questions and answers, or if you simply want to make a comment, please feel free to do so. There'll also be a poem, a couple of poems, that Janet will be speaking about, and you should have found a piece of paper on your chair with a copy of these poems on them, which Janet will be referring to. So would you please welcome Janet Morley. I'll begin with the collect for Advent Sunday. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armour of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. I wish I could write a sentence that long and get away with it. <laughs> so what does it mean in this time and this place to enter the season of Advent, as the Church's liturgy has just announced that we have? It's a journey that we make every year, but we may feel in our culture that we don't do it very well that we pay insufficient attention to everything that December demands of us, that we arrive at Christmas unprepared or sated with premature celebrations, that it ends up being more tiring than magical, that it's over as soon as it arrives, that we're overwhelmed with things and debts to face the new year with, and perhaps that once again, we haven't quite lived up to the expectations of our families and the feelings mutual. In spite of all this, we do usually at some point get given a glimpse of what the whole thing may be about. But it's fleeting 
And whether or not we achieve this seems quite haphazard. Now, I think it's complicated in our culture for a number of reasons. I've come to feel that living as a Christian means consenting to enter a story and to do this repeatedly. At this point in the calendar of liturgical time, the church asks us to enter a period prior to Christmas of living as if the Christ child hadn't yet been born. We re-enter the time of expectation, of promise, of living in hope for what has been prophesied, but which is not yet here. Of course, we know that we're also inhabiting a larger universe of discourse in which the whole story of salvation has been lived out, as in the regular Sunday Eucharist. So we're aware of being on two tracks of time. But then there's another, the expectation of Christ's coming to our world more than 2,000 years ago also echoes with the promise that he will come again. Hope of salvation, anticipation of a final judgment day are entwined together. Inhabiting the past and imagining the future are intended to be lived out in these present days of December. As the Collect says, now, in the time of this mortal life. We're entering a sort of liminal time. Austerity and discipline will be needed as we consider whether we're truly ready for Christ's coming. But while we seek to move into the church's sacred time, there are other competing timelines going on as well within us and around us. Some reinforce the explicitly Christian path at this point of the year, but others compete with it. Perhaps the most noticeably competitive track these days is the shopping calendar, something that has quite a firm hold on our culture. By the time the church is announcing Advent, the shops and the TV adverts have already been announcing for about a month Indeed, the moment Halloween is over, that Christmas is just around the corner. We're expected to be devoting a lot of time, thought and money to the preparation of a gathered family feast. This will apparently involve many things, from ordering a new sofa in good time, to purchasing the latest must-have toys before they run out. Shopping on an industrial scale is demanded of us all. And have you noticed they've just started to bring in new shopping days of obligation? It was, it was just Black Friday a couple of days ago, the, the pre-Christmas discount day. Um, and the implication is that we will indeed be judged on the tastefulness and accuracy of our gift selections and on the success and lavishness of our hospitality. So it's time to consume lots of rich food and alcoholic drinks in the weeks leading up to Christmas as well as on the day. And yet we know that the moment Christmas Day has passed, the shopping expectations will instantly change to exercise bikes, dieting regimes, <laughs> gym membership and detox. Now our public culture does, does recognise the traditions of Christmas, the nativity story and the carols and so on. But again, a time warp intervenes, because the practice now is to celebrate the feast leading up to Christmas, but not one moment beyond. So anyone wanting to mark Advent as a time of discipline, 
for instance, by giving up drinking alcohol or eating chocolates, is going to find themselves seriously at odds with cultural expectations. At Easter, it's different. Everyone accepts that the tough bit has to come first. Now, we can't wholly separate ourselves from this spend fest, nor should we. Those who, because of poverty, cannot spend extra for Christmas suffer the pain of real exclusion and will go into debt to take part. It's a very powerful sign of belonging to our culture and within that of honouring those we love. But the different tone of this track constitutes part of what makes Advent complex to live through here and now. There's another ancient time track that also underlines Advent, and this one tends to deepen and reinforce the themes of liturgical time. It's the progress of the seasons in this place where we live. Now, I can't really imagine what Advent is like to live through in those parts of the world where the seasons are reversed or where they don't happen like that. But here we do find ourselves going deeper and deeper into the dark as Advent progresses and we approach the solstice. Unlike Lent, which begins when the earth is still frozen and ends with the explosion of new shoots and blossom, in Advent things are getting progressively colder and gloomier. Even when the year does turn and the daylight begins to increase again, and not coincidentally we celebrate Christ's birth just after this return of the sun, we're still in the kingdom of darkness and winter and not likely to emerge very soon. <coughs> These days we're much less conscious than earlier generations uh, of quite how dark the dark is. We have ubiquitous artificial light, so we extend the short days of December and conduct business as usual. Light pollution at night means that few of us really notice starlight anymore. We simply cannot see it. And in any case, we're mostly focusing on our lit screens. I suppose if there's anything left of Comet Ison uh, in the next couple of days, some of us might be persuaded to get out and look at the night sky in the very early morning. But even so, with the dark and the cold, we notice the problems and dangers of travel. We suffer the viruses that thrive in the winter, and I personally am hoping to get through this talk without a very embarrassing coughing spell. Bear with me if that happens. We worry about the cost of keeping warm. We're comforted by the old-fashioned light of candles and the glitter of decorations that reflect that light. And this seasonal reality chimes with the other traditional track that's part of our culture's psyche, the old Celtic religion that followed the timing of the seasons and celebrated Yule at the solstice, with fire and warmth and the bringing in of evergreen branches into the indoor space where life is preserved in the midst of cold and death. <coughs> All these tracks are part of our heritage and find their place, however faintly, in our pilgrimage of the heart through Advent. It's a journey that's declared right from the start to be a tough one. The Collect announces this up front. We need grace to cast away the works of darkness. There's going to be a serious battle. We need armour on to face it. 
This isn't about tinsel. Darkness is not just the time of year, but symbolizes the kingdom of evil. And all we have is an insistent promise in the midst of it that he will come. Rowan Williams' poem, Advent Calendar, which I've selected as the the poem for this day, Advent Sunday, picks up these themes. It has a tone of intense yearning in a very austere landscape, conveying not only the hope, but the sheer fearfulness of the time we're entering, the time of waiting that must be endured, the time of some danger. He will come like last leaves fall. One night when the November wind has flayed the trees to bone and earth wakes choking on the mould, the soft shrouds folding. He will come like frost. One morning when the shrinking earth opens on mist to find itself arrested in the net of alien, sword-set beauty. He will come like dark. One evening, when the bursting red December sun draws up the sheet and penny masks its eye to yield the star-snowed fields of sky. He will come, will come will come like crying in the night, like blood, like breaking, as the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come like child. (coughs) The poem's an advent calendar because it starts from the late November storms but ends in the snowfields of late December. It has a repeated prophetic theme He will come. But how he will come is not easy, not easy or just comforting. Using just the features of our landscape and sky as the natural world darkens and deadens down for winter, the poet suggests a realm of struggle and conflict. Apart from the mysterious he who will come, never actually named, human beings are apparently absent Yet the language used for the natural world everywhere implies human suffering or human brutality. The trees aren't just neutrally losing their leaves, they are being flayed. The earth isn't strewn with dead leaves, it's choking on them. The frozen earth waking to a misty morning has been arrested by the dawn frost. It may be beautiful, but it's the alien beauty of a sword. The red December sun is bursting and the swift descent below the horizon is like the covering up of the face of a corpse. So in each case the precise moment of the coming is silent and almost imperceptible, like the fall of the last leaf, like the arrival of hard frost, like the sudden entry of the winter night. The final stanza initially delays giving us a concrete image of how he will come. It just mentions crying in the night, blood, breaking, writhing. And given the earlier stanzas, we start to fear the worst, as this seems to be a world of combat. 
a landscape full of the works of darkness and inevitable struggle. But then we realise that this is not combat or arrest or torture or imprisonment. This is childbirth, which of course typically involves crying and blood and breaking and writhing. He will come like child. The omission of the article somehow emphasises the routine ordinariness of how babies are born. But strangely, it's shockingly unexpected when we think about the coming of the Christ child. But of course, this is the brutal nature of our world into which he came. And of course, this is the commonplace route by which he came. How shocking. Is this what we're waiting for with hope and longing? Well, yes, I think it is. It seems to me that Williams has captured well the traditional teaching of what Advent is about. The Christ child will come, but not until the world is at its darkest, and there will be struggle and violence surrounding the event. <clears throat> and preparation for this utterly ordinary, utterly apocalyptic moment in time will involve us in a stripping down, a facing of fear, an acceptance of the dark, or at least a willingness to go there to wrestle with whatever is lurking. Traditionally, the Church has taught that the period of Advent is the time given to us to contemplate what we most fear. <coughs> Excuse me. The four last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. Pleased to see that the Dean is going to be addressing these during Advent. Whereas in medieval times, the prospect of eternal damnation was terrifyingly real, and the fate of one's soul genuinely the thing most feared about death. These days we tend to take refuge in avoidance and denial of our mortality. And we seem to have dropped the idea that our lives or behaviour will in any sense be judged or held accountable. I don't know why. At one time, even the rich, even kings, realised that their time of earthly entitlement would come to an end, and they would, like anyone else, stand naked before God with only the prayers of the poor to support them. These days it seems the Mayor of London is not ashamed to recommend the traditionally deadly sins of greed and envy rather than believe we need to be held accountable for living by these. <coughs> I don't know what for you will be this Advent, the necessary darkness into which you have to go and wait, but there will be something. Perhaps there's a difficult decision you're wrestling with, or the pain of a relationship gone wrong. Perhaps there's grief with all its confusion and complexity. Perhaps there's an area of disappointment or failure in your life, or something you need to forgive, or for which you need to be forgiven. Perhaps you're living with something hard to accept about your bodily health, or you're accompanying someone else in that position. Or there's something you fear, or maybe something that you cling to but now need to let go of. For all of us, there is the call to open ourselves to some of the pain and confusion of the world, to make ourselves vulnerable in prayer for those who are caught up in the works of darkness, 
without knowing where that will take us. In my book, in the first part of the book, I've chosen poems which explore various kinds of darkness, of not knowing. Elizabeth Jennings calls Advent the season of right doubt, the time when it's appropriate to experience a lack of certainty. D.H. Lawrence speaks of being brought by God into a state of oblivion. R.S. Thomas circles around a poignant sense of God's absence. William Blake goes into the fearful forests of the night to wrestle with the nature of a God who seems to have created violent natural forces as well as innocence and beauty. Ruth Fainlight instructs herself to wait for whatever I find if I search will be wrong. For just as we cannot stop the cycle of the seasons and the inexorable advance of the hours of darkness at this time, so I think we can't avoid having to go into the dark for a period. As Annie Dillard has put it rather shockingly, God does not demand that we give up our personal dignity that we throw in our lot with random people, that we lose ourselves and turn from all that is not him. God needs nothing, asks nothing, and demands nothing, like the stars. It is a life with God which demands these things. You do not have to do these things unless you want to know God. They work on you, not on him. You do not have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is necessary. So the start of Advent is certainly not all sweetness and light, yet there's something about embracing the challenge of the dark that makes available to us insights we wouldn't otherwise notice. For another great motif of Advent is that of hope, the faith in what is not yet seen. Throughout the season, we'll hear passages from the Old Testament which were delivered to the people of God at times in their history when everything seemed politically at its darkest and most hopeless. It's no wonder that these passages have, over time, given comfort and inspiration to many peoples who've suffered exile or slavery or oppression or poverty. The church, following the lead of New Testament writers, also applies these prophecies to the event which is God's archetypal way of addressing and defeating the works of darkness, coming to this earth in the incarnation, being born as a little child, born of a woman. So as the season progresses, we'll find ourselves reflecting on that great mystery through the perspective of the human beings who were caught up in the story of that birth. The chief protagonist is, of course, Mary, the one whom the angel visits, the one whose consent was needed in order for the Christ to be born. And so her pregnancy becomes a powerful image of waiting in the dark, but waiting in hope, facing danger, but honoured with the promises of God. We too may experience important moments of annunciation. We too need to consent to the presence of God within us. We too may have a time of waiting without knowing what the outcome will be 
and what will be asked of us. I've been fascinated to discover just how many poets over the years have explored this theme of annunciation, the descent of an angel, the mystery of an encounter between earth and heaven, the choice to respond having earth-changing consequences. Indeed, I think it's particularly noticeable that poets writing in the last century or so have wanted to explore this story, even when they haven't explicitly been writing religious or Christian poetry, but perhaps examining the roots of creativity. Often it's been women writers, Sylvia Plath, Kathleen Raine, Elizabeth Jennings, Jane Kenyon, Gwyneth Lewis. But male poets also find this moment deeply intriguing. For instance, Edwin Muir. I think it's the genius of the way much of the Bible is written that we're given the resonant stories but there's huge reticence about the interior or personal reactions of the participants in them. Mary, in Luke's Gospel, is distinguished from most biblical characters by at least having her inner life referred to. She kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. But the content of her reflections is not shared. We're free to fill in the blanks for ourselves as we contemplate standing in her place. But although the figure of Mary as the first disciple has dominated our tradition, within the biblical narrative she doesn't stand alone. Matthew's version of the birth narratives actually tells the story from Joseph's perspective instead. But even in Luke, Mary is part of a faithful community and not just a remarkable individual. For instance, it was many years before I understood the significance of the beginning of the Annunciation story we're so familiar with at this time of year. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came. Sixth month of what? I assumed that the author was talking about the calendar. But no, it's the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. The story of the conception of Christ is literally cradled within the womb of the story of the forerunner, the great prophet John the Baptist and his astonished elderly parents. And when Mary visits Elizabeth, the child of the other pregnancy is said to leap in the womb with joy. And Luke shows Mary singing a song to glorify God, which we now know and still sing as the Magnificat. And it's not just about giving thanks for the blessing she herself has received. It's about God's promise to lift up the poor and humble the rich. It's about a revolution in the world's understanding of what matters and who counts. Now, there isn't time today to go through all the rich themes of Advent, and it wouldn't be right, because we have to experience it each year as a process in time. And part of my point is that we aren't at Christmas now not until we've entered the darkness of waiting, become ready to hear the voice of God's calling, consented to God's presence in our lives, and faced what we most fear, as well as what we most hope for. Actually, as I describe this requirement of the Advent season, it dawns on me that this pattern of descent into the dark is very like what it's often about to try and pray at all. But at this time of year, we live through that process, as it were, in slow motion. In the last part of my talk, I want us to look at the other poem that Rowan Williams has contributed to Haphazard by Starlight. 
This time it's a translation he's made from the Welsh of Waldo Williams, and I've selected it for Christmas Eve. It's where we're headed. I think it's a remarkable poem for a number of reasons. For what it conveys about the extraordinary event of the incarnation and who gets to bear witness to it. For its acute understanding of the nature of political power and what it can stop you from noticing. And for what it says about poetry. Before I read the poem and examine it, it might be appropriate to say why I think poetry is a helpful resource for undertaking our pilgrimage of the heart through Advent. There are some completely pragmatic reasons. Poems are typically short, but dense and layered, and so they're ideal for reflecting on a day at a time. Though you can read them quite quickly, they repay being considered in depth as you go through your day. And they're a complete text, not just a fragment or a section of a larger work. Then again, an anthology of poems by different authors keeps the reader fresh and interested in what the next day's offering will bring. Rather than that feeling you get with a single author where you sort of know exactly where they're headed and you either want to gallop on to the end or you'd rather give up now. But there are some rather more profound reasons for choosing poetry because... The process of reading it starts to mirror in some ways the journey into the dark that I've tried to talk about. Poems demand more of the reader than prose does. You have to pay attention, you have to slow down. You have to try out what the poem sounds like as well as reading it by eye. You've got to be a bit humble in front of a poem and you've got to do some work and bring your heart as well as your mind to bear in establishing what you think it means. You might have to wait for a while in the dark because what a poem means will seldom be grasped straight away at first glance and even then the meaning will usually continue to be debatable. And poets strike me as people in our society, whether explicitly religious or not, who are prepared to address subjects that we tend to shy away from and to do so in a direct and clear-eyed way. As you'll hear, Waldo Williams draws on some of these qualities of poetry to suggest that they echo the speech and activity of God in relation to humankind. In the days of Caesar, when his subjects went to be reckoned, There was a poem made, too dark for him, naive with power, to read. It was a bunch of shepherds who discovered in Bethlehem of Judah the great music beyond reason and reckoning. Shepherds, the sort of folk who leave the 99 behind so as to bring the stray back home. They heard it clear the subtle assonances of the day, dawning toward cockcrow, the birthday of the Lamb of God, shepherd of mortals. Well, little people, and my little nation, can you see the secret buried in you that no Caesar ever captures in his lists? Will not the shepherd come to fetch us in our desert, 
gathering us in to give us birth again, weaving us into one in a song heard in the sky over Bethlehem. He seeks us out as word hoard for his workmanship, the laureate of heaven. Waldo Williams was one of the foremost poets writing in Welsh in the 20th century, and he was political. He was a Welsh nationalist and an anti-war campaigner. He protested against the Korean War, withholding his income tax and spending time in prison as a result. So when he addresses the theme of Christmas Eve and the song of the angels bringing peace, it's from a background of active campaigning and not sentimentality. In this sonnet, which is tender in tone, he addresses the people of Wales, comparing them to the bunch of shepherds, the little unimportant people who nevertheless became the first witnesses to the incarnation. Apart from the well-known Bible story it's based on, there's a controlling metaphor here, namely poetry itself. The mystery of the incarnation is imaged as a poem. There was a poem made the great music beyond reason and reckoning. It happened in the time of Caesar, but Caesar himself was incapable of perceiving it or understanding it. It was too dark for him, naive with power, to read. I love that phrase, naive with power. Naive normally applies to someone who's inexperienced in the ways of the world and not to those who wield power, and have a stake in controlling what happens in the world. And yet the reader is jolted by this insight. Of course it's true that those who've achieved political power or wealth do not see clearly many of the realities which the so-called little people experience every day. So what's distinctive about the shepherds and why did they hear the music of this great poem? We notice that the poem actually doesn't really dwell on the angels. It focuses instead on the acute hearing of the shepherds. It suggested that they were able to hear the song, not because it was obvious, but because they were the sort of folk who leave the 99 behind so as to bring the stray back home. In short, their concern for a lost sheep mirrors the impossibly generous nature of God himself, in which compassion defeats commercial common sense. But to return to the problems that Caesar had in reading that great poem, nothing is further from the methodology of poetry than the plain-spoken executive summaries, or dossiers, we might say, that are commonly the only kind of texts that powerful people have time to consult. But poetry is very like the method God seems to choose in relating to humankind. Like the incarnation itself, poetry is rooted in the scandal of particularity and draws its power from this. And it's appreciated most readily by those who themselves are not too busy or too important to attend, as poets do, to the detail of what's going on. But poetry is also a powerful image for what we ourselves may become in the hands of God as we respond to his love in Christ. Waldo Williams' poem ends with a stunning image of God as poet, not only fashioning that great music beyond reason and reckoning of the incarnation, 
but also remaking us into beautiful and telling poetry ourselves. It's as if God needs our responsive hearts in order to compose the great hymn of praise inhabited by the whole creation. He seeks us out as word hoard for his workmanship, the laureate of heaven. So this Advent, let's seek to make ourselves ready not just to join in this hymn of praise, but to become in God's hands part of the music itself. I imagine many of us will be struck by many things during that talk, um, and you may have questions or comments. I thought I might just kick off with one, which is that um, you made references a lot in your talk to making a journey of the heart. I think quite a lot of us may be used to making journeys of the mind, and in our faith particularly as well, it can seem like we're asked to assent to doctrines, statements of faith. For those of us who are not perhaps used to making those journey of the heart, who might be unfamiliar with poetry itself, how might we begin that journey? Uh, thank you for that question, yes. Um, one of the things uh, when I finally got round to learning a little bit of Hebrew that very much struck me is that um, in, the, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, the place of understanding is, is primarily the heart. I mean, the mind is involved, but the heart is, is a seat of understanding. And I, I, I did feel that was very profound. Um, I th as I said, I think what we, what we are asked to do as Christians isn't just to assent to um, a series or a list of doctrines. I really don't think it's just that, although over time those mean more and more to us, perhaps. I think it's about entering the story, and it's what I was trying to say earlier. All I can say is, that's the way I've chosen the poetry. You're not necessarily going to agree with the angle that each writer takes in these poems, and some of them um, avowedly are, are not writing, in their minds, religious poetry. Um, so you're not actually asked to necessarily assent to everything these poets may be saying. But I think I am asking you to um, read and enter into, into the world, the imagery, the story of that poem, and 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 interact with it. Um, is that yes, yes, and in a sense, perhaps bring our own stories into the stories that we're reading. I think inevitably that happens um, without necessarily thinking that our everything in our story is the same. I do think that the overarching story and within the story, the, 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 the smaller stories within Christianity um, can take up and 
um, our stories can resonate within them and there is a, um, a movement of maturity that we come to then, um, which is more than just the mind. Some of us, I think, to be honest with you, I think some of us start with the mind and some of us start with the heart. And I think whatever kind of person you are, in a sense, you've got to reach the place where those two things are knit together. That's a really good point, yes, yes. Um, yes, the, the, the comment is surely that's, that's what poetry does, is to knit together heart and mind, because it's not just um, straightforward, plain statements, it's using imagery and symbolism which move us, which, for which we have to use our, our sense experience and um, our experience of life to, to resonate with. So, yes, I think that's absolutely right. I've come to realise, actually, yes, more and more, that it is a very, very helpful um, kind of language for um, exploring what we mean by living our faith. Actually, a little quote from the poem that I've chosen for Christmas Day, which you'll come across if you, if you have the book, um, from a poem by U.A. Fanthorpe, who used to... Every, she was a Quaker, and um, every Christmas she would write a new poem to send out with her Christmas cards. Quite a short one, and often, often quite witty, but, but which suddenly hits you in the heart, if you like, about the meaning of it. So um, I, I took the, um, the phrase from there... Um, I don't think this journey is, is a sort of straight path, really, very often. I don't think the Christian life is often, you know, you get on the straight of nar on narrow and that's, you know, see where you're going and, you know, go straight on. I, 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 at least mine hasn't been like that. Um, so I think uh, what I like about the word haphazard because it reflects the, um, uh, in that poem by Fanthorpe, it reflects the, the journey of the wise men and the, the journey of the shepherds a little bit, sort of, well, they happened to be those who were there who heard the angels or, you know, the, the um, <clears throat> so-called wise men who sort of ended up in quite the wrong place um, before they ended up in the right place, which is quite helpful, I think, for many of us. So, so I think, I think that's, that's also part of it, that the, sometimes it's only when you look back, I think, on your life... Um, that what was experienced was haphazard, perhaps, at the time, and when you were making various choices of going in different directions, you, you can then see the story having, having a, a direction and a meaning. And as you say, the starlight issue is, I think, the, the fact that we find it really, really difficult to see the stars now. It is, you know, it's, uh, it's in itself a very powerful image of, of our culture being almost... <sighs> overwhelmed by um, just what is going on now um, or what is attracting us now or what's about cons consumerism now rather than um, uh, bigger uh, realities. Thank you very much for that question and for sharing something of your own um, painful um, feelings about this time of year. 
I was fascinated when I got into this, this task that I'd set myself of doing, going through Advent is, is that not only Advent, actually, but also some of the, some of the um, liturgical events around Christmas are pretty tough. There's, there's some martyrdoms around Christmas that the church in principle celebrates, though uh, not very many people, I think, turn up at church on St. Stephen's Day or Holy Innocence. Um, but I, I discovered that um, it, there is a toughness and there is a, a, a dark theme that doesn't just go away the moment the Christ child arrives. And um, I, I think you'll see in, in the poems that I've chosen um, that mixed in with joy, there is always an awareness of um, the reality of, of death. And, and that understanding of the nature of Christmas, of course, is um, very traditional in medieval uh, thought. If you, if you look at some of the early carols, the shadow of the cross is falling across the crib almost immediately. So you are denied the idea that it's just all sweet and lovely. You immediately have the sense of the battle with the powers of darkness, if you like, which, which, which uh, hover over this child's crib. Um, I do think a lot of people um, have bereavements at this time of year, and even if they're not at this time of year, this is a time of year where they, f they face going towards Christmas without a loved person, or as you go from uh, New Year's Eve into the new year. That also can be a very painful threshold. And I've tried to recognise that in the, poets, the poems that I've chosen at that time of year. Um, myself, I find it, um, including the complexity of feelings that are around for many in this time of year, helpful rather than, rather than taking away from the joy of the season. I just think joy and pain are woven very close, um, and, and that's the reality. Yeah, so perhaps we've lost the shocking nature of yeah. elements of the nativity because we're not familiar with what those things are and what they mean. But if we put them in current everyday usage, we get a much more powerful sense of how... Yes, yes, so that embalming of the yeah. Christ child. Thank you for that uh, point about myrrh. I think myrrh also was incredibly expensive. So, I mean, it does fit with uh, the gold as well. Um, but um, that, that, that's right. I, th I think it's more what we make of the story, isn't it? That, and, and the interesting omissions. You know, you don't get with nativity scenes, you never get the soldiers. You get the angels and you get the men. And, you know, but you do not get the soldiers. But in the Bible... You know, they're absolutely around. I mean, Herod is a reality in, in the Matthew story and, and Herod's um, sinister instructions to the wise men are, are part of, you know, but we sort of stop reading when they go home a different way. Um, so you know, we don't have soldiers in our crib scenes, but, but it's there in the Bible. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, the question was about how we... Um, make that journey of the heart in a sense, um, which is perhaps completely different from the journey of the mind, and trying to link the two might take us away from the journey of the heart, which is more about surrendering to what's the story, and the, the truthful uncertainty, I think is how it's put. It's the risk of poetry. Oh, yes. I would like to 
surrendering to the poetic yeah. form, yes. Or Well, I hope they do, actually. Um, I mean, I think poetry is not liturgy. It is not trying to state the whole of Christian truth, even when it's a Christian poem. It's looking at some limited aspect of the truth in some very sharp detail, you know, or looking at a problem. Um, what I found myself doing, uh, and, I, and I, my, I mean, I think when you make selections in an anthology like this, it, it is partly from the heart rather than from a, a sort of um, uh, intellectual assessment. I found myself including some quite problematic poems that, or poems that set up real issues for faith. So for instance, Blake's The Tiger is really looking at um, a god who creates um, the violent um, supremely efficient predator as well as the innocent lamb and what kind of god lies behind that creation um, i've included philip larkin's poem uh, church going which he was very clear wasn't a religious poem but a lot of people um, who are religious have taken it to be extremely helpful it's basically his his um, experience of going into a country church and, you know, kind of wondering what will happen to places like this frosty old barn in future generations when nobody really knows what they're for anymore. A bit like we don't know what Stonehenge and those kind of stones were for, so we sort of make it up. Um, <laughs> sorry, there may be uh, believers here who know exactly what it was for. Um, uh, and, and so, so actually thinking about the sort of, you know, will, will this all be here? Will we all know anything, whatever these buildings are about in the future? Um, and there's a few others that um, uh, ask us to go down into some quite, quite bleak places like Dover Beach. Um, you know, we are here, it's on a darkling plain. You know, and the, the, that very, very um, powerful loss of faith poem um, or um, Yeats is the second coming so I, I am I am asking the reader to, to actually address some of the um, not easily resolvable philosophical issues um, and fears that are around and I think that's part of it. I mean, because it, it, at what time of year are we going to address some of the really hard things, if not now, which is given to us as the time of darkness um, before the coming of the light? Yes, yeah, so referring to other poetry, George Herbert's poetry, uh, which is looking at some of that... It starts um, with conflict, it starts with battle, it starts with power, even politics. Mm. So, so the journey from the dark, battling hard things to a place of resolution, yeah. and uh, another Scottish Celtic poet, it's a Scottish one, who, who, who sits. Yes, and then the journey into a kind of lullaby, something more yeah. um, positive, maybe. Yes, thank you for that, uh, reminding us about Herbert, because he does include the struggles and you don't feel that they're, that they're 
easily got through or, or not real in themselves. They, they really are. Um, but you're right, he also reaches um, a place of, of um, surrender and um, tenderness. I've included one uh, by George Herbert, uh, actually called Christmas, and he speaks about um, Christ's coming um, wrapped in night's mantle, which I think is simply gorgeous, that um, there is a, a sense that the darkness, is that he sort of steals into the stable when we weren't looking. He stole into the manger. Um, so that, yes, God, he, he is the light, the glorious yet contracted light, but it's wrapped in night's mantle, and it's, it's through the dark um, that the light becomes available to us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for you who've uh, been attending and um, coming up with many questions. Thank you very much, Janet, for sharing your wisdom with us and for giving us a lot of fuel for the journey ahead. Um, copies of Janet's book are available for sale here at the front, and Janet will also be signing copies. Um, and we've also got details of the Sunday Forum programme for the next uh, couple of months here at the front. There will be no meeting in January at all. So the next Sunday Forum will be on the 2nd of February, when Esther Duval will be speaking on her book, An Introduction to Celtic Spirituality. Um, but in the meantime, if we all show a sign of our appreciation to them. Thank you.